Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Fans of the show might remember we did a little review of it in the past. We actually went and saw it at a theater. They did a limited run screening. It was really cool, and we're excited to talk about it. We're also going to take a look at Pig, uh, that Nicolas Cage flick that came out late last year. Got a little bit of buzz. It's available on Hulu. We watched it, and we're going to let you know if it's worth your time. Believe it or not, no middle segment this week. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't remember the last time this happened, Andy, but... Alternatively, we have a ton of news. We have the most news I think we've ever done on the show. So <laughs> a, lot, a lot going on. Dude, there's a lot going on. So let's jump into the news. Uh, first story this week, a new film studio is going to be built in space <laughs> by 2024. In space. Uh, you, Yeah, you found this headline. I think it's bunk, but I, I mean, I, we do a movie podcast. How could we not talk about this? They're going to build a film studio in space, Andy. What's this going to look like? Well, uh, they're going to build it kind of off or attached to the International Space Station, and eventually it will, I guess, separate and be its own, you know, set orbit <laughs> studio orbiting the, the Earth. Um, it's going to be kind of small. It's going to be, I think, six meters by a, a six, basically 20 by 20 room. Um, and it, you know, it'll be, I guess, equipped with cameras and I don't know if a crew will manage it, but you know, that you'll be able to send someone up and to do zero gravity or low gravity, uh, spa space shoots for a movie, which just seems insanely expensive. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be called C1, S-E-E-1. -E uh, apparently the company making it, Axiom Space, won NASA's approval to build a commercial component of the International Space Station. They're the ones putting this together. I don't think it's actually attached to the International Space Station. I think it's its own thing. Uh, but Andy's right. It's like a 20, 20 by 20 room that's going to be used for influencers, sports stars, fashion designers, anybody who can afford it, essentially. Um, I think this is... <laughs> I don't know, uniquely a horrible idea. And then at the same time, as a person safely on the ground, one of the greatest ideas I've ever seen entertainment ever come up with. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it is interesting because uh, I think what you can really do do with it will be a, a lot of PR stunt kind of things. will be like, Tom Cruise went to space for this movie or we sent a whole crew. Because it's, you know, I think to do one of those, those space tourism things, it's like $250,000 a, a person, uh, if not more. So if you send up more than one person, it's just going to be insanely expensive. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential for, you know, memes or, or, or gags or maybe like limited time events. But I feel like the best movie that could come out of a film studio being built in space is the documentary about the film studio being built in space, right? Because any scene you see in a film where they're actually shooting in this thing is going to be presented as part of the universe of the film and not actually some kind of special thing. That's why film stars on green screen sets have gotten to a point now with CGI where it pretty much works flawlessly. I enjoyed watching Gravity, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's film, even though that wasn't actually shot in space. But if they shot a portion of it in space, and I knew that going in, I feel like that would just pull me out of watching the movie. And I'd be like, ooh, this is the scene they shot in space. Meanwhile, the movie about the thing being built in space... That sounds a lot more interesting. So I don't know. I, I mean, especially I don't know. since the, the potential for disaster is so high. So it yeah. could make a good documentary. <sighs> like, yeah, because like I said, they, they got to build it. It's gonna take like two years to build, and it'll be at again attached to the the ISS, and then will detach and be its own uh, thing. But the, yeah, I mean, like, how much is this gonna cost to shoot? You know, a minute of film, or you know, you get someone up there. How much can you do? Maybe. Maybe there's a secret formula, you know, if you, you know, you send one one person up and that they do a whole, you know, maybe you could do a one man play. I don't know. Right. Um, I, I People will figure out ways to do to use this, but it's going to be insanely expensive. Yes. I, I can't imagine the insurance to get up and down from there just by itself. Uh, not to mention, I assume actors are going to have a writer for this, right? If you're taking Tom Cruise up to space, you better be getting paid. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know where the money comes to produce this thing, uh, but it is a fun idea. If you're watching on Facebook Live where we stream the show every Tuesday or on YouTube where we post our old episodes, you can see the artist rendering of what this thing is supposed to look like. So come check us out over there and you can, uh, you know, see, see what the film, the space station film studio of the future is going to be uh, right here on Off Script. Uh, next up, Billy Ray and Adam McKay are teaming up for J6, a film about January, the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Uh, too soon, Andy? What do you think? 
this just seems like a really terrible idea in general yeah. to make a, a a lot of times especially with things that are current th- it's much better served in something like a documentary um because it, a lot of what happened that day is pretty horrific and kind of fictionalizing it uh just might lead to a lot of problems i think of the uh what is it uh patriots day or whatever the movie about the boston bombing yeah was really poorly received and you know a lot of the people that were there and affected by it really hated it because they thought it was exploitative and that uh, a lot of things were misrepresented so you know a documentary would be better not only that but i mean adam mckay is known for doing these satirical comedic uh takes on you know real life things and that's is that really the the take you want on something so serious and tragic I mean, no, not to me. Uh, We've got some details on what this might look like. Uh, Billy Ray, who is making this in collaboration with Adam McKay, I should explain where he comes from. Uh, He uh, wrote and directed the Showtime miniseries, The Comey Rule, which was that Showtime series where Brendan Gleeson plays Trump and Jeff Daniels plays James Comey. Uh, It's a limited series. I remember it made some headlines, but I don't think it actually was I don't, I don't know if it was very well received. I didn't watch it. Adam McKay, obviously the director of most recently Don't Look Up, which we lost watched on last week's episode. Uh, both of them seem to have a tendency to want to cover real life politically charged events. Uh, and Billy Ray here says of talking about what this movie would look like, he says the goal is to do a ground level view of a momentous day. That's January 6th, 2020, uh, 20, yeah, 2021. Uh, it's about protesters who became rioters and cops who became defenders of democracy. Someone else can tell the story of the chaos of the white house in the day. I want to stay in the trenches. That's, 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 that's great. But like, (laughs) I just don't, I mean, mean, again, I, I think in the right, hand the right director who would take it serious i mean because you can do really serious you know spielberg doing uh schindler's list is you know an excellent ex- example of taking on an incredibly serious subject and, and doing it justice so i i just i think that would be the correct approach you get someone like uh paul greengrass or someone else has kind of done these hands-on uh things to really kind of pay tribute to to what happened um and respect you know the lives lost and all that. I think it can be done, but I just don't see like a comedic direct director being, being the right, being the person for it. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like Billy Ray wrote this script for the show as a Showtime limited series. Originally, it says he had about 300 pages of scripted material and he condensed all that into a 120 page feature script to make what we've got now. I'm assuming, Let's see. Billy Ray's last movie, last series, Comey Roll, came out on Showtime. Adam McKay's came out on Netflix. This is going to be a straight-to-streaming joint, right? Like, there's no way you get enough buzz to put this out in theaters. I, I don't I don't think. I mean, you might. All right. Andy thinks you might. You might. <laughs> All right. Anything could happen. Yeah, why not? Um, I, you know, to me, seems a little soon. Uh, it seems a little exploitative. Yes, it does remind me of, like, the Boston bombing film, Patriot's Day, or... or uh, you know, a little bit of the, like the Comey rule, like it just feels like you're kind of jumping on the hype train while you can to make some make some easy dollars. Um, and that may not be the right reason to make something like this. You know, maybe it could be neat. I, I don't know. But I just I don't have a lot of confidence uh, in, in J6. We'll see what that turns into. Our next story, uh, Mission Impossible 7 and 8 have been postponed until 2023 and 2024 due to the pandemic. Wah, wah, no more Mission Impossible, no. I won't have a de- it. A delay because of the pandemic? What is yes. this? It's only been happening for two years straight and continues yes. to. It's true. It looks like Mission Impossible fans left to wait a little longer to watch Ethan Hunt save the world from imminent destruction. Paramount Pictures is delaying the release of the next two films in the long-running spy series. Worth mentioning, they did not say the last two films in the long-running spy series. They're going to do them forever, but the next two... You're going to have to wait for I don't think that's bad. We, we've already kind of got some Tom Cruise stuff on the horizon, right? Like, that's not that's not a bad thing. We don't I mean, need Tom Cruise every year. I mean, allegedly. I'm, what what are the chances Top Gun actually comes out this this May? Oh, God. Top Gun. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to look as old as Maverick looks in that movie by the time Top Gun comes out. Like, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to feel like one of the old old guard by the time Top Gun Maverick comes out. Um. Why is this getting delayed? I, I think COVID, right? I think that's that's really it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's if you have a big enough movie uh, like Spider Man, COVID doesn't matter. But if you're not like the most hype thing in the world, a lot of people are just going to stay home. So I think they're probably just waiting to where going back to theaters is just a little bit bit more normalized than it is now. 
I think that's true. Uh, additionally, it does say here that shooting a Mission Impossible movie is particularly challenging. Uh, they kind of globetrot, a little like James Bond, and they try to use as little green screen as possible. I think that's marketing buzz, but whatever. Uh, the latest film is shot in Italy, the UK, and Poland, just to name a few locations. So you can imagine getting a crew in, jumping through the hoops it takes to get uh, uh, COVID clearance, right, to get everybody to shoot, keeping that together on set. Um, you know, Tom Cruise fans may remember him flipping out when they were filming the last movie at some people saying, we are setting the standard in Hollywood. Uh, and in a way it's true, right? Like you have to, you're going to have to be able to get through some protocols, uh, with the proper documentation. And that's not easy. That's, that's not easy to do with, with this many people in this big of a crew. So, you know, I, I don't think the world's going to be hurting for mission impossible movies. I really don't like it, I know it's not the same, but we got more fast and furious movies coming. There will be more mission impossible coming. They're going to figure out James Bond at some point. We got plenty of big star studded male driver movies, right? Like that, th th those will be around. Yeah. Our next story, Batgirl enlists Ivory. Okay. I don't want to say her name wrong. Andy, do you understand her name? I should have looked it up. Ivory uh, Aqu Aquino? Aquino? Uh, probably Aquino. Is that Ivory that Aquino to play DC Films' first trans character, playing a friend of Barbara Gordon. Uh, this is a story, I'm going to be honest, I haven't really read yet, but I wanted to talk about because diversity is important, and I think it's worth mentioning here. Uh, this is the first time a trans character has been in a DC property. I think Marvel has already crossed this line. I'm not sure. I just feel I like I read it. somewhere in a movie somebody had a part in a Marvel movie that was trans, but maybe not. Uh, but this is exciting. This is involving the new Batgirl movie. Andy, you're the comic man. What do you know about this? Um, well, uh, not too much more than what you've already said, but like you said, it, it is uh, the first, one of the first, if not the first um, uh, trans person to be in uh, DC property. Uh, she'll be playing... Uh, Bat Batgirl's best friend, known as uh, Elisa Yo, um, which I'm not I'm not familiar with this character. I haven't read it uh, in the comics, but uh, comics in general have a lot more have a lot better representation than a lot of movies uh, because the readers don't seem to get upset about it like a lot of other other people. Um, I know I've come across similar characters in other properties. Green Lantern, I'm thinking of specifically uh, lately. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with her, that character from, from the comics, but, uh, it'll be interesting and, and that'll be in the, uh, Batgirl movie, which is coming out, I think just on HBO max. Uh, yes. Which will be starring Brendan Fraser in a villain role. Love Brendan Fraser and Michael Keaton back as Batman, man. They've got him. They got their hooks in him. Like Michael Keaton's going to be tugged into every Batman project, uh, till who come last, at least outside of, as far as I know, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie or movies. Um, that's exciting. I don't know. That that could be neat. I'm a little bum little bummed Batgirl's not going straight to the silver screen. They just got way in front of that. They're like streaming only. Streaming only Batgirl's only on streaming. She's only and we're gonna have a trans character, but it's only on streaming. It's fine. Uh, and also a quick write-up here. Thank you to the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, on the small screen regarding trans characters in, in in comic book films, Nicole Maines played the trans hero Dreamer on the CW Supergirl. So CW crossed that line. And then Zach Barack, who's trans, appeared in Marvel Studios Spider-Man Far From Home as a classmate of Peter Parker's. That's Marvel and Sony, but yeah. All right. So yeah. Okay. There's there's some there's some developments here, and I think that's I think that's good. Why not? Right. Let let people act. No release date for Batgirl, by the way. We have no idea, but keep it here on all Sometime in 2022, that's what we do. It is this year, I think. Is it this year? All right. I believe well, so. At some point, it'll happen. Uh, our next story, AT&T sets, sets plan to spin off Warner Media in a $43 billion deal. I'm going to be completely honest here. I don't know what a lot of this means, and Andy knows what a little bit of it means, but we thought it's important to talk about because it could have big implications. Andy, what's going on here? Um, so AT&T is spinning off its streaming business, which is Warner Media. Um, Warner Media will join, uh, kind of combine with Discovery later this year. Um, and so there, there will become a new company called Warner Brothers Discovery. Very original. And what AT&T, what that means investor-wise is that uh, investors will now have, you know, part part ownership stock in AT&T and also in the, this new company, which is actually the reason they're doing this because it's the cheapest way for AT&T. If they completely split off the company into something completely separate, that they have to pay, they have to shell out money for investors for this and that. And this this is very complicated and we're not going to get into the weeds but the big takeaway here is that AT&T is getting out out of the streaming business essentially uh, they're a very old school company their telecommunications is is their bread and butter 
that's what investors like about them. They're, while there's not a lot of room for growth in that, that sector, it's very reliable uh, what they do have. And so that's very attractive to in, investors. But streaming is expensive. It requires a lot of investment. It was too expensive for AT&T to really hang on to in the long run. So they're spinning it off and to this new company that will be uh, separate. Uh, Andy's right. This is definitely a lot of complex language in here. Uh, it seems like he said the pros and cons are, are going with either when they were talking about whether or not they were going to what they were going to do with the Warner Brothers portion of their company, Warner Media. Uh, they were trying to decide whether to go with the spin or a split, a spin off or a split off. I don't know what either of those mean. I'm on a movie podcast. But what I do know is it's interesting that AT&T doesn't want to continue upholding the cost of streaming. And it's worth mentioning, right? Like it seems like we see all the good things, right? Streaming's killing it. Everybody's going to streaming. Streaming services are huge now. But the backend costs are tremendous. Netflix still has trouble claiming any kind of profit from what they're doing. Like it, it is absurdly expensive to run one of these things. The profit margins are large. We can look at those numbers and think, man, what a deal. But it's not easy. It's by no means easy. Yeah, and at and seems to see that. It used to be that a streaming service when Netflix first came out, it had everything that everyone else was making, you know, sh t movies that had already come out, shows that had already come out or that were in progress. And they was just kind of the one-stop shop for all of it. But now in the streaming game, you got to be creating original content, new content constantly. You need shows and new shows and movies like every week, every month. It's, it's a ton of investment and it just kind of never, <laughs> never ends. Yeah. Uh, so it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough market. Right. You have to run a factory where you, you incur every single dime that goes into the products that go in and you just kind of hope they sell when they come out. Usually you can find sure things, but for the most part, like it's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of work. Right? It, it big, big profits equal big, big, you know, big effort. And our last story uh, this week, Disney will be changing Snow White. <laughs> There's Snow White remake going in a different direction uh, after <laughs> Peter Dinklage uh, called them out. Peter Dinklage is, of course, best known for his role as Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. Uh, he will be soon appearing in Joe Wright's Cyrano de Bergerac or Cyrano is the name of the film. Uh, Peter Dinklage is a little person. I think that, I believe that's the correct term to say. And I want to apologize in advance if I offend anybody. I promise I'm not trying to. I'm just ignorant. Uh, I'm just dumb. Uh, and he has been working most of his career to try to stand out and 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 redefine the role of little people in Hollywood, right? Um, because for a long time, that was something that was maybe a bit of a, a misaligned role. I think people often use that for comedy, right? As as, as the butt of jokes. And that's not okay. And and Peter Dinklage has spent most of his career trying to go against that. And for the most part, it's worked. Cyrano de Bergerac is is him playing against type. I mean, that's not that's not originally how that role was written. Uh, Tyrion Lannister is tremendous. I'm pretty sure he won a couple Emmys for that role. Uh, the man's got talent. And he was recently on the WTF with Mark Mark Marin podcast. Uh, <laughs> podcaster gets real guests. <laughs> <laughs> a real podcast. What are you trying to uh, say? Yeah, here we are talking about what I was having on somebody else's podcast. Anyway, uh, he was on WTF with Mark Maron, and he was explaining uh, that the this idea of this new Snow White, this, this reboot Disney's doing is backwards. Andy, I realize I'm talking for a long time, but I promise I'm getting to a point. The new Snow White has Rachel Ziegler, uh, the star of Spielberg's West Side Story, just came out as Snow White, who is, who is uh, Latina, I think, properly. Uh, and she's not Caucasian. And you would think in a role like Snow White, you would be casting a Caucasian individual. But Disney is doing something different and they're going in a new direction. And that's okay. Diversity is important. Disney does a lot of that. With that in mind, here's Dinklage's quote. When it comes to diversity in film, he said, quote, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. Literally, no offense to everyone, but I was a little taken aback when Disney was very proud to cast a Latina actress as Snow White. But you're telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Take a step back and look at what you're doing there. It makes no sense. You're progressive in one way, but then you're still making a freaking backward story about seven dwarves living in a cave together. What are you doing, man? That's a censored version, by the way. If you'd like to see what he has to say, you're welcome to uh, check out the stream where we're talking about it. Or go listen to the Mark Maron podcast yourself when you're done with this one. Uh, and he makes a good point, right? Like you're going out of your way to recast your main lead, your, your protagonist, your heroine, uh, in a new light. But then... The dwarves around her, the, the, the little people, assumedly, are going to be the same? 
You're not going to change them to animals or change them to, uh, you know, tall beings. I don't know. You're not going to make them magical creatures. Like even Frozen had trolls, right? What's the plan? Like where where are we going with this? Uh, and since then, Disney has had a bit of a pivot. They quickly came out with a statement and said, "No, no, no, that's not 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 quite what we're doing." And then later to the Hollywood Reporter that next day, they said, "Quote this." Disney said, "To avoid reinforcing stereotypes in the original animated film, we're taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarvism community." That's tremendous. <laughs> that's very very well PR'd. But I wanted to talk about this in news because it's rare to see, I think, a company as big as Disney take such a hard turn so quickly when one person speaks out against them on a podcast, right? Of all places. Like people say stuff about Disney all the time. We've said stuff about Disney on this podcast a lot. They never respond. They never go in a direction with that. But uniquely here, they immediately jumped to and said, we have something to say. Andy, any exciting thoughts? Uh, just that, that, you know, to Peter, I think Peter Dinklage was very right to point this out. And, and it's an example of how Hollywood and, and corporations in general can be very performative in their changes, you know. They want to pat themselves on their on the back for uh, ca- casting a Latino person for the the lead, and then again, yeah, still use these very outdated, regressive roles for uh, the uh, the seven dwarves. And um, yeah, I'm not sure how you update the story, but you um, you know you could have maybe one or two little people instead of all seven. And the other thing, I, I think it's like they all serve her in the story, and right. so like that's that's an issue as, as well. So. Yeah, I mean, you really have to think about everyone that's in the film when when you're thinking about how to update kind of outdated um, stories. Yeah, and it's interesting because a while back, Disney talked about, yeah, they've talked about their live-action remakes for a while and the strategy, but there was definitely a conversation I, I, I feel like I recall reporting on in this podcast here on Offscript a long time ago when somebody from Disney was talking about films they will reboot and won't reboot and they they just said flat out there there are certain ones in the library we won't be doing song of because, the south <laughs> obviously yes yeah uh, also like pocahontas uh they they said like we have no intention of touching Pocahontas, right. like right. because it just feels like that's really dicey and that was a film from a time when i don't know like it, it was just a little easier to float to mainstream audiences you know and that's 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 their marketing that's their direction it's their company they can do what they what they like um I felt like Seven Dwarves was one of those ones. I felt like that was one of those movies where they were like, yeah, there's really not a great way to do that now, so you probably should just leave it, right? And I think it's interesting that they're going for it anyway. I I, I am disappointed that it seems like from this story, uh, they hadn't really thought that out, you know? Um, or maybe they have. I don't know. Maybe it's PR spin. I don't know, but it's interesting. It's interesting. And with that, we should probably move on to our proper reviews. Thank you for the longest news segment in Offscript history. Give yourself a pat on the back if you made it this far. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, we don't have a middle segment, so two two quick reviews. Not, well, well, full reviews, but back to back, one after the other. Nightmare Alley followed by Pig. Andy's going to be taking the summary on Nightmare Alley. Andy, please take it away. Nightmare Alley. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. So we talked about this a few weeks ago because uh, I went and saw it actually last month when it came out. On um, it came out the same day as Spider Man. Sadly, it had no no chance. Um, but we recently over the weekend got to see a special black and white edition uh, of this film at the historic Texas Theater, and it's a brand new upstairs screen. Texas Theater, please sponsor us. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah and, they've never heard that before, I'm sure. Yeah. We're the first podcast that's ever asked. Um, Notice some of that money you've just got sitting around in the vault, like Scrooge exactly. McDuck. Yeah. Um, and this was really in- incredible. The black and white uh, works so well because this is a new noir kind of, or it's a noir film. Um, and it, it takes place in the 40s, so it's really appropriate for, for it to have that, to be in black and white and to ha- have that look. Uh, to remind everyone of, of the story, uh, we meet Stanton Carlisle, uh, who joins this tra- traveling carnival, learns the ways of a carny. He, he, um, he makes some friends along, along the way, and he, he befriends one of the, uh, mentalists, uh, in the, in the show, which teaches him how, how to, you know, appear to be a psychic, a medium, how to read a crowd, how to work a crowd, how to do cold readings. He really takes to this and eventually strikes out on his own with his lovely new wife, uh, played by Runa, Rooney Mara, who is also a stage performer. 
Um, and he goes out on the road finding lots of success, but he, he's a man, uh, very ambitious who kind of doesn't know when, when to quit. Uh, so that's our, our setup. And, uh, this was really fantastic. I really like this, especially seeing it a, a second time. Um, and there's a lot of great things to talk about. Zach, what'd you think? So I was skeptical about this movie going in because, uh, if you didn't hear, uh, Gabriel Torres Nightmare Alley grossed less than $10 million. Not great. Now, we've seen a lot of bold cinema that did not gross high numbers. Uh, and I love Guillermo del Toro, but he hasn't come out with a movie in a couple of years. His last one was Shape of Water. Academy Award winning Best Picture that year, Shape of Water, right? Which is incredible. Um, so this was his new thing. And it just wasn't a lot of buzz. And I didn't hear a lot about it. And it didn't seem like it was a big deal. And, and so it, it hit HBO. And I didn't watch it when it was on there for the first 30 days because... I just felt like I should probably go see it in a theater, but then I missed the theatrical window. But then this new black and white screening comes along, right? Nightmare Alley. It's called Visions and Visions of Darkness and Light. That's the formal name of it. Uh, it ran in a bunch of theaters. We went and saw it. Um, not only was this movie a lot cooler than I thought it was, dude, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it as much in color. <laughs> Nightmare Alley was really cool. Yeah, I liked it a lot. If I had seen it last year, it probably would have made my top 10 list. Like I liked it a lot. This was a really cool movie and it's unique and it's different and it's noir. And I'm really excited to talk about it here. Yeah. In an age of constant reboot. I mean, this is a remake, but it's a remake from a movie that's almost that's 80 years old Yeah, at, at this point. So it, you know, it's about, it's, it's, it, that's a little bit different. Um, and it's just, it's an incredible remake. It, it tells a really compelling story, really interesting uh, characters. And it's very dark. It, it's very different from a lot of kind of Hollywood, you know, uh, type of, you know, let's all make sure we get a happy ending and our hero see, sees it through to the end. We, we have a very uh, ki kind of divided or controversial uh, protagonist uh the very first thing we see san carlisle do doing is hiding a body in a house and setting it on fire that's the opening scene yeah it's the before first time he, we see our, our nameless faceless almost faceless protagonist yeah, yeah before he goes and joins his carnival and while he's at the carnival he he has moments uh, of compassion and 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 care for for other people so it's it's a very complicated uh person that kind of walks both lines of, of like morality yeah, I, I agree. I want to get into it. I think we should, we didn't talk about this before the show. I think we should talk about the black and white at the end. Let's just talk okay. about like the movie proper. And then I, because I, I, I do have thoughts. Um, I, I was watching another review uh, of this movie to get ready to do this podcast, help collect my thoughts. And, and, and uh, uh, Game of Del Toro said in an interview that, that Nightmare Alley is like a ramp. It, you start at the bottom and you just keep going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And you got to figure out where, whether, whether or not that, that, that ramp ends in a drop off or up at the top. That's for you to go see this movie inside. We don't do spoilers here. Um, but I think that's such a great like description for how Nightmare Alley is built. Uh, it's long. It's two and a half hours. Uh, it has three pretty full acts. Uh, the second act, I think, does sag a little bit in the middle with a bit of a, a love story between Bradley Cooper, his character, and uh, I, I guess I didn't say uh, Rooney, Rooney Mara's character. He's got a bit of, bit of a bit of an infatuation with one another. Um, but the first bit when we're when we're kind of meeting our, our con man, meeting our protagonist, who who is. Uh, startlingly good at, at reading people and observing people. You know, he's, he's, he's basically a con man, like, and he's very good at it. Him kind of discovering this kind of mentalist, it's not, re not really an ability, but, but a skill, and then developing that into a bit of a profession and feeling like, man, this is something I'm really good at. That's tremendous. And then our third act, finding where all of this goes, him, him, him working at it and becoming better and meeting people who are bigger deals and, and have bigger stakes, like, that's really interesting. And it all turns into this wonderful crescendo uh, at, at the end of the film that I think is um, just a ton of fun, a ton of fun and unique and different, right? Exactly what you'd expect from a Gabriel Torah story. Um, something really, really special. And somehow also a remake of an old movie. I, uh, Nightmare Alley originally came out what, in 47, 1941, mm -hmm. I think. And you would never think Gabriel del Toro would be remaking, you know, some some old black and white flick. But like it, it he brings himself into this in such a such a great way. It's tremendous. Yeah, and he had he had wanted to make this for a long time. He's been trying to get the rights since the '90s, and it there was this a big dispute over who owned it, and it kept kind of changing hands. And then finally, the rights got sorted out, and 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 he made it. And this is also worth noting. This is based 
on an awful by uh, William Lindsay Gresham um, from I'm sure the the 40s or, or 30s uh, as as well. But it's um, yeah, it, it's just it's a different kind of film from from what we usually get. It's like w- like we said, we don't really know where it's going. The the setup is is very is you know pretty standard, um, but then where the film goes, it, it has and it's not it's not kind of like you know cheap surprises. It's just uh, it could have gone in a lot of different directions, but the way the story goes is really compelling. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I want to talk about, I think, our cast, right? Uh, star-studded cast in, in this feature. I was very surprised by how many uh, faces turned up in this movie. Almost almost every 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 scene turn, every, every, every change to a new setting, I, we would run into somebody who I recognized. Uh, we've got Bradley Cooper as Stanton Carlisle, our lead. Uh, we have Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe. Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Richard Jenkins, Mary Steenburgen, David Strathen. It's crazy. Holt, Holt McCallany, like Jim Beaver, Clifton Collins Jr., Tim Blake Nelson. Like you just keep <laughs> running into people who are who are who have a lot of talent. It's almost like a Wes Anderson feature, right? How Wes Anderson's got kind of his group of his, his theatrical troupe together of, of actors and actresses. That's a little how this felt. It's not a lot of recycles from Shape of Water. I think Richard Jenkins is one of the only ones who came over, but otherwise, oh, and Ron Perlman obviously did a lot of Hellboy with Guillermo del Toro. Um, otherwise, like it's it's really refreshing and it's really diverse. Like I can't remember the last time I saw Rooney Mara in a movie. I definitely have not seen Bradley Cooper since The Star Is Born, unless you saw him in Licorice Pizza. Uh, I didn't see him in that. I haven't seen that movie yet. So it's nice to see people I haven't seen in a while. And I think Cooper is a great pick as kind of an outsider character, similar to uh, John David Washington in Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Right? He's he's this, he's an actor who's not a big deal. He's not huge, you know. So you can kind of fall into his character a little bit at the beginning of the movie when he plays this bit of a man from nowhere. You're like, okay, yeah, Bradley Cooper. I haven't seen him in a while. What's what's he up to today? You know, and then you, it helps you kind of fall into the spirit of the film, which is a great setup for this very mysterious start for a character mysterious past. Right. Uh, another huge highlight is Kate Blanchett, uh, who we don't see until Act Two, who is just phenomenal and. I mean, she just lo- looks, especially in the black and wh- white version, we'll talk about them more, but she looks like she just fell out of the 40s. Yeah. Like, like she looks like Rita Hayworth or any of these old classic uh, actresses. Um, she like she just has such a, a way, such camera presence, uh, the way she holds herself, the way she walks, the way she talks. She's got this wonderful voice um, and, and pl- kind of plays a, a mirror or kind of counter to uh, Bradley Cooper's character really ph- phenomenal performance and then again we we have really bad actors in smaller roles like we said uh, tony collette uh willem dafoe and a lot of these characters are kind of established uh, a kind of a spectrum of, of morality because we're really we're living in a, in a gray a very big gray area um with P- and willem dafoe is the the carnival owner who is like nothing is above this <laughs> and there's there's a great place with steak and eggs where he, he's trying to get someone's mind off so steak and eggs on me steak um, eggs. yeah don't act like you care about that guy just because i'm here oh, yeah i'll buy breakfast oh my god uh it, yeah and but then you have ron perlman and uh rooney, rooney mara is kind of a more familial familial uh, role uh, along with uh tony collette um but yeah the performances are phenomenal i wouldn't be surprised if we see some oscar nom- nominations uh from what's going on here yeah it's 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 a ton of fun uh i really enjoyed the set design and I, I can talk about the proper direction in a moment, but I, I want to take a moment to talk about the practicality of the sets. This carnival kind of traveling circus uh, that most of our first act takes place in is entirely practical. There's a couple of interiors that they went and shot on a soundstage, but any like exterior shot, they built that whole thing. They strung all those lights, they put up the tents, and they used period accurate stuff. They used ropes that were appropriate from the 40s. Like they had like chicken cages that looked accurate. They had like horse saddles that were correct. Like Guillermo del Toro obviously is 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 a man who lives exclusively inside of his own, in his own head. And it's really fascinating to see a director pull us into that, you know, into this world that obviously is imagined for years. He's been trying to get the rights to the story. Um, 
And it's it's cool to see it so well pulled off. You know, this rain. It's constantly raining in this movie. <laughs> There's rain everywhere. Much like Shape of Water, I think Guillermo del Toro just likes rain. Uh, it adds texture to a scene. I don't know. But, uh, God, it's just it's just pounding these people, you know. And it's, it's, it's dripping through holes in the tents. It just, it makes the world feel so tangible, which is crazy, especially because we saw it, again, in black and white. And it totally works. Um I, I love the sets. And then later, as, as you start to accelerate into a little bit, a bit more of society, right? The city. You're getting these wonderful buildings, beautiful architecture from the 40s and 50s, you know? Like, it, it feels like you can see... It felt like I could see the color coming off the screen, even when there was no color. I could just fill it in with my mind. And and mm-hmm. and it creates a really vibrant setting for a story, always. Like constantly going to new, exciting places. Right. Del Toro said in an interview that he insisted on completely building these sets. Like, they could have shot on a soundstage. He said, no, build me a carnival outside. Yes. You know, bring the tent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's also a, a large part of the movie takes place in the winter in, I, I think it's, it's Chicago or some sort of big city. Um, and there's snow everywhere. And that's part of what, what they, they needed. And this isn't, you know, they're not bringing in pounds and pounds of salt. I mean, they had to shoot in ice and snow. Uh, they had to have for, for a lot of it. Um, and it just makes it so much more more tangible, so much more usable. And one of the things he said, this he said, this is a $100 million film that we sh- shot for $60 million bucks. So, like, we, we made it work. We reused things when, when we could. Right. I, I hate I hate because that that's a, that's still a big budget film and you, you also know how much money it made. So unfortunately, you know it, it, it bombed. But yes. I mean, no, no one anticipated that Spider Man No Way Home was going to be one of the biggest films of all time. Right. That's true. I mean, we're 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 in a weird spot, and obviously, when they started putting this movie together, they didn't know like, hey, this is where things are going to be. I do wonder if Del Toro's next or future features will be straight to streaming. Um, and I. I in a way that I think that might help, but at the same time, like I almost hope not. Um, this movie was such a delight to watch in a theater. Del Toro's got a really great eye for like dreamlike presentation. The camera is constantly craning or like pulling, dolling one way. Like there's just there's pushing in on somebody or pulling out to like reveal a scene. Like there's so much motion and movement and it's all so smooth. It's just so like, so fluid all the time. And it really makes you feel like you're, like you're experiencing a bit of a dream. Like you're just kind of drifting slowly through things, almost in the way I felt about watching um, Joel Cohen's tragedy of Macbeth. Like it creates this really fascinating kind of feeling, especially over two and a half hours. I mean, that's a lot of time to keep people glued to their seat, but Del Toro manages to pull it off. Um, especially in a, uh, in what is a, I don't want to get into spoilers, but a, a really, really solid start to act three, like a really, really fine end to act two and the start of act three. So if you start getting bored in the middle of the movie, don't get up and go to the bathroom. <laughs> Cause it like, I it, like yours. It, too, like yeah. That. Boy, oh boy. Does it pick back up? Um, and it keeps you hooked through the rest of it. Yeah. And, and that's that, that stuff's effective, really effective. And I think you really see that stuff on the big screen. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Just, um, it's just great, great storytelling. And, and the thing is, it all builds like you, you know, there, there's foreshadowing. There's, you know, like you're not certain you don't have like, you know, a Shyamalan-esque twist to just to just to pull you in different directions. Like everything makes sense as, as we move through the story, as we build up as our, our characters develop. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, um, you know, it, it's got some elements that we're a little familiar with, right? It's noir. That's important. You're not set in the 40s. Um, and they, they they lean into that. There's a couple newspapers that talk about FDR wanting to go to war, you know, and, and, and you know, you hear radio broadcast in the background or something. Additionally, uh, Cooper, Bradley Cooper, and everybody in the film uh, really lean into uh, traditional accents. I was watching a Vanity Fair uh, interview with Bradley Cooper where he said they got a very specific accent of a man from a very specific part of Mississippi that he like really trained on to get down, but like it really fits the movie. Like it doesn't, it's older for sure. It's definitely an older way of speaking, but like it's, it really helps his character feel like a part of the world. Kate Blanchett gets it perfect too. Um, she, I don't think she does much of like a particular accent, but she just like, like you said earlier, dude, she just like melts she, into the she, movie. Like yeah, she I mean, just fits she, in the world so good. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's sort of the, the femme fatale of, of the movie and, yeah, just like I said, the the way she talks, the way she looks on screen, the way she carries carries herself. Um, yeah, it, it's like she walked out of a different era. Yeah, 
I think um, I also want to mention the the bit of the story element when he our, our lead is kind of developing his craft as this sort of mentalist. Uh, you get a bit of uh, you know a bit of prestige vibes, right? Christopher Nolan, you know, a little bit like the Illusionist. Like you get a little bit of like almost like a magician learning and, and performing. You know, we get to see behind the curtain how they're learning their tricks and what that's going to look like. And uh, you get a bit of that pleasant rise through society as they work hard and and, and own their craft and essentially conning people right essentially lying to people and 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 performing sleight of hand and 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 doing performing feats that simply aren't possible and and that creates a really unique just like those movies creates a really unique tension to everything they do because you and i know the truth as as bradley cooper's character knows but everybody else doesn't and that makes it exciting because that that adds tension and, and suspense um and i thought that was neat like that that definitely helps in that second act because it does slow down a little bit it's two and a half hours long movie that's okay um, black and white. Else? Okay, uh, I'll take black. I did want to talk about the soundtrack, but that's sound. We can talk about that in a minute. Uh, black and white. What do you think? Because you've seen this in color now, right? You've right. Seen both. Yeah, I, I saw. I saw it in both. Um, for some reason, I I didn't get into it as much the first time I saw it. And it a, a lot of times, I've described this before. I have like, uh, you know, watch viewing anxiety where I'm like, well, where's this? What's going to happen? Where's it going? What kind of movies this going to be? And I'm right. like. You're trying to keep your eyes so wide to catch everything that like you can't focus on like the, what's actually yeah. supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of times I, I enjoy movies better the second time when I know where they're going than, than I did the first time because I'm like, I'm looking for too much or I'm like just not not sure. That happens a lot, a lot with me. Um, but I really loved it in, in black and white. Like I said, it looks like it, it came out of the, the 40s. And it, it's, you know, the fact that it's period appropriate helps with that. But even just the way it's shot, there's some of these big close-ups again with with Kate Blanchett and talk about her all day, where where like her face is taking up the the entire screen while uh, Bradley Cooper's in, in the background, and just it, it looks so good. It's very very sharp, and again the the it being part noir uh, helps as well because the, the the blacks just seem to look even darker. Uh, Bradley Cooper himself looks like he stepped out of the forties. There's a lot of shots of him in like a big overcoat and a dark hat, and it, it's night. You can only see half his face. There's a lot of that that kind of uh, thing from from the forties as well. Lots of shadows on people's faces where you only see half of it lit up, and it works so much better. Or it seems to be more effective in black and white, or you notice it more in black and white than in in color. Yeah. Uh, I think the black and white's brilliant here. I, I know uh, there's a lot of people scared of black and white movies, right? Like, no, it's going to be boring or it's going to be dull. And even I kind of did it with this one because I hadn't seen it before. I can't remember the last time I went and saw a movie that was released in color in black and white first time. I don't know if I've ever done it. Like, usually you see it the way it's supposed to be presented, right, to general audiences. And then you go see the niche version. We did that with Parasite. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie uniquely plays great in black and white. And I think there's two reasons. One, because it's noir and and everything in the world is so tangibly presented as such, right? All of these are real sets. All the weird props on the table are real props. And, and everybody's doing accents and everybody feels very genuine in the costuming's on. But number two, uniquely, and I don't know how accurate this is, but... Guillermo del Toro claims when he was promoting this that he lit this film as if it was going to be playing in black and white. Now, I've heard that before, right? Uh, uh, um, oh, God, who directed Mad Max Fury Road? Can't remember. Uh, George Miller. George Miller said that he loved the way uh, Mad Max Fury Road looked in the editing room when they were playing it black and black, when they were playing it back as completely desaturated black and white. That's how we got black and chrome. Black edition. and chrome. Uh, yes, Mad Max Fury Road, black and chrome. This movie, Gamble Toro, claims that he basically had it in mind as he was producing it, which is part of the reason this exists. I think normally I would say that's like normally I would say that's that's a bit junk, right? Like I think Guillermo del Toro's got great lighting all over. I think he could kind of say, "Yeah, I did I did that totally intentionally and maybe just get get some buzz from marketing because you got to make more than 10 million dollars and if you release this in black and white, maybe you'll get a little extra a little extra squeeze." But God, dude, this movie looks so good in black and white. Like, I really don't know. I tell you, Andy, I went back and watched the trailer for this movie in color. I think the color looks awful. I mean, not all the time, <laughs> but there's like there's a lot of those those circus scenes like at night, and it's like this weird blue day for night tone that just looks bad. And it looks so much cleaner in black and white when I just imagine those streaks of light as like moonlight instead of some like weird post-processed coloring. He does a lot of that stuff. Guillermo del Toro leans on color, and I think that's good. And maybe if I watched the whole thing, I'd feel differently. Uh, but man, it it 
it just it fits so good in color. I don't know if I want to go back. Like I think next time I watch this, I might just desaturate the TV and watch it in black and white. <laughs> yeah, because like, it, it just it plays so good. But I don't know if it's a different mix. It's probably a different a different cut of the edit with different color adjustments. I don't know. Right. Well, it's always to me. It's always exciting when we get a black and white version or a colored version of a black and white film. It just gives us a different way, a completely different way of experiencing the story and the cinema the direct all all of it and so it's always exciting and yeah you can you see both now that it's on it's it's on streaming as of today on hbo max um and a lot of theaters are still playing it in uh or a few if you're playing it in black and white so you can see both and uh make up your own mind yeah and i think i would it absolutely well maybe i'll save it for recommendations the one other thing i want to talk about was the music um the music in this movie is super good. And the soundtrack is very persistent. It, it's through a lot of scenes. I feel like it's it's always kind of in the background. And it's not really like, it's not particularly memorable, but it just felt kind of haunting while I was watching it. Like this is kind of older music of the kind of the circus plunks of a piano. And, and just, just it's just a little off-putting in a way that is like so refreshing. And that's what this movie feels like. Like it just, it just feels refreshing. It feels good to watch a movie. It's not quite mid-budget, but you know, like it was basically shot on a mid-budget and just really runs on the fuel of a creative and their team and to, to, to create something special. Um, it's a really cool watch. I, I'm 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 bummed I didn't hear more about it. I'm glad we went and saw it. I I I I, I don't know. Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Nightmare Alley? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really fine work from Guillermo del Toro. I said unfortunately it got overshadowed by Spider Man, uh, No Way Home. Is that the one? Yeah, No Way Home. <laughs> and, yes, far from uh, yeah, No Way Home. Re- it's a really interesting, compelling story about ambition and greed, and you know the uh, this the idea of manipulating people and all that. We we have a tragic and kind of ambitious, overly ambitious main character. We have a phenomenal cast with uh, the the supporting members of the the other car- carnival folk we meet, as well as other socialites along the way as as the story progressive progresses incredible cinematography mood music you name it um yeah it, it's really grown on me and i really loved it especially in black and white yeah uh i'm i'm firmly in the same camp this movie's great uh okay hold on my friends i don't know if it's great but it's very good it might even be great um nightmare alley is a ton of fun i i really enjoyed it i'm bummed i didn't hear more about it i should have looked into it um i feel like i Really enjoyed watching it uh, with Andy at the theater, but I do wonder in the same in the same margin that anyone saw. I wonder how I would have felt if I went and saw it by myself um, in color, you know, just like everything else. I wonder if I would have walked out and been like, "Well, that was okay." Um, but man, uh, that black and white is real crisp, man, real crispy. If if you got the means, if you can, I don't I don't know if it will be released in black and white. They, they considering they ran a. Small, but but functionally national movement of putting this black and white version out in theaters. I feel like at some point this will come to retail. It's maybe as a feature on the Blu-ray. I don't know. Maybe just do what I'm going to do and turn the saturation down on your TV. But like, if you're skeptical about Nightmare Alley, like, try it out. All right, because it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. It's pretty sick. And that's Nightmare Alley. Uh, No middle segment like we normally do. Sorry, folks. We'll get to one next week. We're going to jump right into our next review. I'm going to be taking the summary on this, so please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is Pig. So Pig is the story of a homeless and downtrodden truffle hunter who lives alone in the Oregon wilderness and must return to his past in the city when his prized pig is stolen in the night. Uh, The movie stars Nicolas Cage as our lead truffle hunter, man in the woods. Uh, Looks like he has never had a shower ever. Uh, You know, it looks terrible. Um... And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm hesitant to say more. If you've, if you've heard a little bit about Pig, uh, people may have told you more. People may have told you, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta know, 
the less you know going in the better and this is uniquely one of those features but for the sake of conversation i do want to offer a little bit more so if you're scared and you don't want to know anything maybe pause the podcast and come back after you've watched it but for just just a little bit a little like like 10 percent 10 percent spoilers because i gotta give us more to talk about here this is a podcast after all um nicholas cage's character is joined by uh amir played by alex wolf from hereditary uh the two of them go into the city and uh yeah I have to sleuth out the stolen pig. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's worth mentioning there is another character. It's not just Nicolas Cage in the woods. <laughs> they they yeah. do they do go to places. Things do happen. It's a bit of a mystery. It's a bit of a thriller. Uh, ultimately, you obviously want to find out not only where this pig came from, but what the hell Nicolas Cage is doing out in the woods. <laughs> why is he... Why is he out there? Who is this man? Um, that's the mystery of Pig. And and believe it or not, it's been phenomenally well-received. Movies directed by Michael Cernoski. Andy, what'd you think of Pig? I really like this. I, and I'd heard a lot of really good things about it. And I said, I heard that it was, you know, kind of something different and a kind of different performance uh, from Nicolas Cage. And what I like about it, it's, it's almost kind of, it has the setup uh, of, of a kind of a revenge action thriller you know uh it reminds me a lot of the the premise for john wick which is you know john wick's dog is is killed someone kills his dog and then he goes on a murderous spree um as revenge and this it's begins in that kind of thing his prize uh, truffle hunting pig uh is stolen and this is how he makes his living so he has to come get it back and he's this old gruff angry cynical guy living in the woods um and we look like he's you know, there's all the, these images of kind of knives and stuff in his his uh, in his cabin because he uses them to to get the truffles. Uh, but you get the sense that he's going to go on a rampage with his you know his prize knives and he's going to be cutting people up, shaking people down, throwing them against the wall, getting answers. Got to get the pig back. Um, That's right. And it's the exact opposite of that. It is that kind of movie as far as a man is trying to recover what is stolen from him. But it's he's not the kind of guy. Uh, as much as he looks like it, he's not going around roughing people up. They they are, you know, talking to people. It's a little bit of a mystery. It's, it's a hunt, essentially. But it's it's much more about how he approaches people, who he is, and how he talks to people. Because he, he is someone that is re- respected, but kind of uh, hasn't been seen in a long time. And he has to kind of dig down and and kind of not I, again i'm trying not to give too much away but yeah a, a lot of the, a lot of the the scenes that we would normally have like a big fight scene or a big you know, like brawl something like that is it's all done through conversation through really incredible intense um moments and partially because he he is a person who is um because of the challenges uh, of the world has he's just very frank he's very you know none of the he's like none of this matters He's like, and and he, he just get, really gets to people, and, and it's really incredible. And when we we meet his kind of sidekick, Alex Wolf, uh, you know, he's dressed as a kind of a hotshot young business guy. He drives a bright yellow uh, Dodge Charger. He wears a gaudy Gucci belt and you know fancy clothes. He's definitely trying to uh, you know portray a certain image. And Nicholas Cage is like, what are, what are you doing? Why are you dressing like this? Why do you what do you think people are gonna like you more because you're like like this so it's it's a very different character than we expect and even the poster the poster looks like like he's gonna go go out and terrorize everyone forget right. this pig but it's not that kind of movie um so i told yeah it's it's funny you say that i first impressions are mean a lot and that could be part of the reason this movie did not exactly crush it uh Christine was asking me what we were going to watch this week. And I said, well, I got to watch this movie pig. And she said, what is it? I said, I haven't watched the trailer in a long time, but I think it's a horror. I genuinely, it's not a horror. It's, it's like a mystery thriller, really drama. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even wander into thriller. Um, they, there are some thrills and some chills, but for the most part, um, that's yeah, not, it's not a horror movie, but yeah, like the poster makes him look like a freaking slasher. Like who, who's, what is Nick Cage doing in this movie? And that's not, that's not at all what it's about. The pig is about, <sighs> Somebody on IMDb said this perfect. Here it is. Uh, Pig pig is about looking back and and trying to decide whether or not you should like despair over your past and things that have already gone or looking forward and struggling with the fact that you can never go back to the the, the way things were or that nothing will really matter in the future anyway. (laughs) That's a weird, that sounds like a weird thing to say for, for a movie called Pig. But Nicolas Cage's character is like surprisingly deep. 
And Alex Very Wolf's character... Very ni- ni- nihilistic. Yes. And Alex Wolf's character isn't exactly an optimist, but he's definitely like taking a bite of the apple and living in the moment. Um, and the two of them kind of play this kind of just just kind of odd couple not not any kind of buddy cop duo <laughs> they don't even really get along um but they just kind of fit in the moment for each other in the movie and there's a bit of bit of a bit of emotional development certainly some character development over the course of the film that um really really like ekes itself out is something kind of profound and it doesn't start that way Pig starts the way our summary starts. It starts the way it appears it's going to on the poster and for the most part in the trailer. It's Nick Cage in the woods with a pig. Where's this going? And and it becomes this kind of wonderful tumble down a rabbit hole into a surprisingly emotional place that I didn't expect. Like by, by the time I reached the end of this film, I was, I was really su- surprised that I, I felt I had been kind of touched by this film in, in a way that obviously you don't think a movie called Pig is going to do. Um, and you know, and I guess that's a marketing thing. What? <laughs> I don't know. I, I would think you would lean in a little harder. Um, I'm not sure why they did this this way. It reminds me of Mandy, right? Another Nick Cage film. Yeah. Or that, Color that, Out of Space or Willy's exact, Wonderland. Um, that's, it exactly reminded me of, of Mandy because I, th- I a similar thing. I, I thought he was going to take revenge on everyone and, you know, bring fire and brimstone to everyone. Yeah. Uh, funny funny story by the way uh mandy color out of space and this movie pig are all edited by the same person same editor across all three films that's interesting yeah um but as far as i know completely different studios the only thing that's consistent is nick cage um and also this movie is presented in three chapters just like mandy is but irrelevant um not a lot of performances right um i i think this is probably one of nick cage's better in a long time right um every once in a while he turns out something tremendous the last one i thought was really good was mandy this is obviously a very different character from mandy um but it's uh really thoughtful alex wolf is pretty good i look (laughs) here's the problem alex wolf has been tainted by hereditary because i see alex wolf and i'm just like I expect hereditary quality here and I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. That's a mistake. I don't expect that. Well, I do expect that from Tony Collette, but she shows up. Uh, Alex Wolf is good. He's young. He's learning. And Nick Cage is his reportedly his favorite actor ever. So I think getting to work alongside him was exciting. And the two of them fit like he, he, he fits really well in the movie. Like he, he hits his lines when he needs to. It's, it's powerful when it needs to be. He's vulnerable when he needs to be, uh, you know, he's talent. I liked him in hereditary. I like him in this. Yeah, uh, he he's he's good. And like, what I love about this, like, this film is ninety minutes, and it, and it has really good good pacing. Like, we we have our interesting characters, and they have a lot to say about life and love and loss, um, all in ninety minutes. We so yeah, go ahead. <laughs> like, you don't need, you know, t- I I am convinced more more and more that a hundred minutes around there is the the perfect film length. Most most things don't have enough for for a full two hours. Yeah, the generous side I've heard of that is 110 minutes. If you can't get if you can't get your movie in 110 minutes, 90 plus 20, then you got to do something different. Uh, so a bit of fun fun trivia about this movie from from courtesy of IMDb. So they shot this whole movie in 20 days, uh, which is very fast. Uh, reportedly, they didn't have a lot of time for reshoots, so they pretty much had to get stuff first try. The pig uh, they couldn't afford to train pigs. So the pig was untrained and bit Nick Cage like 15 times. <laughs> which, <laughs> Jesus. which he apparently didn't think was funny as a quote here after a particular nasty bite cage joked i've been set on fire i've been flipped in cars but it'll be sepsis from a pig bite that kills me uh and interestingly enough 20 days and it's a short film and it's tight and i think it works for what it is originally the the first cut of this was over an hour longer and distributors oh, wow. were like we will buy this from you but you gotta you gotta cut this down it is way too long uh, and I think that would have hurt it for sure. I, I don't know if I could have watched another hour of this without something really, really juicy happening in that hour, right? Like that's a, that's that's a whole other act to the film. Like you gotta have there's gotta be some some big changes or something happening in there. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it, I, I I think it really works for what we've got here, and I do wonder what that longer cut looks like. Yeah, it would be interesting, and I did, I really enjoyed the the pacing of it, and like I said, these these confrontational scenes where you would. You know, in a traditional action revenge thriller, you know, people would be, you'd be getting in fights, throwing people through windows, torturing someone at, somehow. We, but we, we still have a lot of very, you know, intense 
confrontations, but they they just play out so much differently and, and so much more about the war of words with people and 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 power. It, it kind of innate power. People that do have more power and influence than others. Yeah, there, there's there's a couple of uh, like awkward conversations that happen in the film and um they just feel a little strange and they're 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 there for to drive you towards an emotional point which the film does arrive at and, and looking at looking at that now seeing they only had 20 days and didn't have time for reshoots i do wonder if they're just awkward because they couldn't that's just the best performance they got from the actors but the setting i think is really really tremendous because you start out in the woods out in the middle of nowhere you don't even have really an idea of time or, or place right and as the film kind of opens up and builds you discover okay they're out in oregon and they need to go into portland is the city they're going into and suddenly as we kind of get pulled into the city like you do feel like a bit of a stranger in a strange land like camera's always on nick cage and he looks so out of place like it's so obvious he doesn't belong and the, the city uniquely starts to feel strange like it feels like an off-putting setting it feels like we're not supposed to really be there because we're not like nick cage should be out in the woods that's where he wants to be that's his character's got a whole reason for being out there that's his whole thing like he just he's just that's his thing um, and I like the way the movie makes you feel a little out of place. It, it makes it makes the city feel uh, alive and mysterious in, in certain aspects uh, in a way that is effective coming from just a small movie on a small budget. And that's what this movie is. Small movie, small budget. It totally works. Like I, I, I think you buy you get a couple good actors, you get a decent soundtrack and you get some good storyboarding and some cinematography. You're going to have a movie like Pig. Uh, it, it almost makes it look easy. It makes movies like this look easy. It's like, oh, yeah, this is everybody could be making movies like this. And they don't always come along that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with that, Andy, uh, any other thoughts or recommendations? Uh, I really like the soundtrack. I like the music. Very I need ethereal. to go back and listen. Yeah. I didn't notice the soundtrack till the end of the film. And that's when I felt like, oh, wow, this is really pleasant. I need to go check it out. Maybe it's on Spotify. Anyway, uh, Andy. Would you recommend Pig? Yeah, absolutely would. I was really surprised, like I said, from from the poster. And I, I didn't see the trailer for this, but from the poster it, and what I'd heard about it, that it sounds like this action revenge uh, kind of thriller to this man's pig. He He's out for blood. Um, and it's completely not. Uh, but what it is is so much more refreshing to see uh, that kind of formula, but but taken in a completely different direction about a man who is willing to kind of do anything to get, to get his his thing back, um, but not not in a violent way, and at the same time, you know, philosophizing on like I said, life, love, loss, what it like you said, what it means to move on, what it means to remember the past but not get stuck back there. Right. And again, that, that's not what I would expect from a Nicolas Cage movie at all. So no. highly recommend. To, uh, to, to feel the pain of an old wound um, and, str and continue struggling with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm in the same boat. Pig's a lot of fun. Uh, it's available on Hulu. It's 90 minutes. I think the less you know, the better. Don't even watch a trailer. <laughs> just, just, if you made it this far and you're interested, go check out Pig. It's, it's quick. It's pretty harmless. Uh, and it, it's pretty much got ringing endorsements from most critics that have seen it, I think. Um, which I think is rad. So... That's Pig. And that's our show. Uh, Andy, what are we watching next week? Next week, before I forget, we have, uh, we're back to theaters uh, hey. with, with Jackass Forever, uh, Johnny Knoxville, Steve-O, Chris Pontius, and crew of Jackass fame come back in what is maybe their final, uh, but probably not a film rendition well. of, of the Jackass series. Uh, we'll be seeing that. That's a uh, hot 90 minutes theaters only. Um, and then we will also be watching the lost daughter, which is a drama starring, uh, Olivia Coleman and Dakota Johnson, which is out on Netflix came out uh, a, a few weeks ago. I've heard, heard a lot of great things. Uh, so that's what we're going to be, um, watching. And if anyone else wants to get in theaters, uh, Moonfall also comes out, uh, this Friday, which is the big Roland Emmerich, uh, disaster film, uh, that I'm sure is going to be really bad, but probably entertaining. You don't uh, know so it that, be bad. So, that, so that's in in theaters. And other big uh, thing for next week is that the Oscars get announced on uh, Monday, February eighth. Yes. So we'll be in with uh, hot Oscar news. See what all the noms are. Uh, who's buzzing? Who got snubbed? Uh, it'll be a good day. I'm very anxious to see uh, who's getting picked at the Oscars this year. It's going to be. 
It's going to be something for sure. It's going to be an interesting year at the Oscars, I hope. Um, hopefully we get some a good host. Somebody pulls the whole show together. It'll be a better show than the Golden Globes no matter what. So that'll be something to look forward to. Andy, I know I talked about it last week. Jackass Forever or Moonfall, what do you think is going to do better? It's got to be Jackass Forever. I'm convinced. Jackass I mean, Forever. May, maybe Moonfall will like come out, but I, I just, I think, I think Jackass so, Forever is going to so be better. So I, I think there's something, well, first of all, it's hard to get people to the theaters for anything. Yep. Moonfall is it's a disaster film we've seen a hundred times before, and it's just I don't think something like that it's gonna pull people. Jackass, no. however, has a storied history of delivering big yes. laughs. Uh, you know, it's it's essentially a legacy property at this point. Yeah. You got brand it, recognition. Yeah, there's a reason MTV has funded four of these films where they have essentially uh, yeah, amateur stuntmen almost killing themselves regularly. I mean, that's it's the reason they're doing that, and it's money because these movies perform. Uh, and yeah, it's like it's like ninety minutes of TikTok. It's gonna be great, right? Who 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 isn't gonna love that? Every teenager in the world wants to go see Jackass forever. So that's what we're watching. If you enjoyed the show today, or maybe you want to keep up with our reviews for next week, or you have some thoughts on the reviews for this week or anything else that we're doing, you can find us at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. On Facebook, we live stream the show every Tuesday. On YouTube, we post our old stuff. And of course, our podcasts are on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and iHeartMedia and everywhere else podcasts can go. But if you want to write into the show, you want to get engaged in what we're doing, maybe maybe let us know what you think of the Offscript crew. Screw off script crew got it you can write a rating and review you can subscribe to the show or you can mail us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com send us some correspondence we might even read it on the air and uh you know talk about movies we like talking about movies movies are expensive podcasts are cheap and that's why you should subscribe to offscript film review for more from your favorite movie hosts right here right here on offscript this, this, this is it right here you're here you made it and with that, I think that's our show from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.